Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science across Australia on the Community Radio Network. My name is Stu and on the show this week I'm going to be talking about some new research into the measles vaccine. Now you might have thought you knew everything there was to know about the measles vaccine, but the measles vaccine has some unexpected benefits which we've only just figured out uh, and some research have been working on why does it seem to work so well not just to cure measles but to stop other diseases as well. Right. Yeah, so that, that's interesting. Uh, and Chris, what have you got for us? Well, I, I can't just say that I did not think that I knew everything about the measles vaccine. Um, <laughs> I know very little about the measles vaccine, so I'm anxious to, to learn all about it from you. Uh, well, I'm, I'm talking about the, the recent UK election, in fact. Um, and basically, I'm going to do a little bit of look at forecasting, how basically all the forecasters got it wrong. So I'll kind of look at the, the basis of... Now, what is that? What is forecasting? Things like the elections and weather and and that kind of thing, and and just talk about how humans are bad at probability and understanding statistics. Excellent. Yes, and and Beth will also be here. She is. Uh, she has an interview lined up. She will be talking to Dr. Hannah Brown from the University of Adelaide about a topic that we talked about recently. I think you talked about it recently, Stu. Um, some recent research into finding and replacing DNA in human embryos. Oh yeah, it's been yeah been described as DNA editing. Yeah, that's They're right. Just, just switching bits out or playing God. It's also been described as that. Well, that, that, yeah. any time you mention DNA, that that sort of pops up, doesn't it? Yeah, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll hear more about that. Yes, and we'll also hear also about um, Dr. Brown's own research into the influence of a developing embryo's environment uh, and how that influences health above and beyond the genome of said embryo. So yeah, it's all about genetics and that kind of stuff. Interesting. Hmm. Stay tuned. Now, most people probably think they know what measles is. Spots. Spots, yeah, well. But, in fact, a large number of people have probably never even seen a case of measles, except, you know, maybe on TV or something like that. I had the measles when I was a kid. Did you really? Yeah. You didn't have the vaccine? No. Oh. Where, where were you living at the time? Queensland. Yeah, well, that was that might have something to do mm. with it. Um, but in Australia, as with much of the developed world, it's actually a pretty rare disease these days. Mm. Well, it was um, a long time ago that I It had was it, yeah. a long time ago. Well, not that long. You're not that old. Um, but this wasn't always the case, and uh, it's not the case in other parts of the world where people don't have access to the measles vaccine. Uh, and it still actually results globally in about 100,000 deaths mm. every year, which is you know, quite a, a significant number, yeah. It is a significant number. Um but where successful vaccination programs have been introduced, the numbers of measles cases dropped dramatically since the first half of the 20th century um, from, you know, from hundreds of thousands of cases to thousands of cases to dozens of cases uh, mm. in, in places where the programs were very successful. Um, so the measles virus was isolated in the 1950s and an effective measles vaccine became available in the early 1960s. 
Uh, and then that was combined with the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine appearing in the early 1970s, which was, you know, then spread out. Um, it's pretty unusual to get just a measles vaccine these days, mm-hmm. too. Um, but one thing that stood out to scientists who studied epidemiology, they looked at, you know, epidemics before and after the measles vaccine became available, was a significant drop in disease after they started vaccinating people. Now, that's probably to be expected, you would think. That's yes. the purpose yes. of the vaccination that's, program. That's what you see, yes. Um, now, they were expecting a drop in measles cases, and they've found since that the vaccine's about 90% effective at producing immunity in patients when they're given the appropriate dose. But what they observed was a drop in other communicable diseases uh, and deaths from those diseases, despite the vaccine not actually having a specific effect on those mm-hmm. other communicable diseases. Okay. Um, so the simplest conclusion and the first thing that popped into their heads when they were trying to figure out what was going on here was that in areas where there were successful vaccination programs, uh, the general level of health care had improved over yep. the same period. Makes so sense. less patients died of things because they had access to doctors and hospitals and all those sorts of things. Um, but that wasn't the whole story. And recent research has suggested there may be more complex reasons for that drop in death rates following the introduction of the measles vaccine. So in a paper published in Science, the journal Science, in May 2015, researchers suggest that one of the symptoms of measles is a kind of immune system amnesia, where basically the body loses its ability to fight infections. Um, So normally when we're exposed to a virus, our immune system responds by building appropriate antibodies that fight off the particular virus we're exposed to. Yep, like tailored to that virus. Tailored to that specific virus. And then usually we're immune to that virus if we're ever exposed to it again. Um, So, you know, often people get chicken pox once and then they will never get it it again. Um, Now, in some diseases, uh, the actual virus itself causes a drop in responsiveness of the immune system. Uh, And in in the measles virus in particular, the effect is pronounced for two to three years when recovering patients have less protection. Okay. And they actually lose the ability to reproduce the antibodies they already knew how to produce. Hmm. So you can actually get sick again from things that you might have already been exposed to. So by looking at data from whole populations before and after the introduction of the measles vaccine, the researchers have discovered that contracting measles increases susceptibility to other infections. And obviously when infection rates go up, then the death rate from complications of those infections goes up as well. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what they found was that in places after the, um, after the measles vaccine was introduced, Mm -hmm. the number of other deaths from infectious diseases went down, even though they didn't have a vaccine for those infectious diseases. Um, So yeah, what they're, what they're basically saying is that uh, the measles virus will give you measles and it gives you all the symptoms of measles, but it, knocks your immune system out for a little while, which means you're more susceptible to get other things, which could also potentially um, 
increase to the to the death rate in various areas. So when we think about measles, that probably brings to mind the signature red spots, which is yep. exactly what you said. Um, it's actually more like a rash, and it can cover your entire body. So some people get individual little red spots. Some people get covered in a in a rash of red welts almost all over their body. Um, but also can cause serious complications in about 30% of infected people. So on top of the the coughs and runny nose that come with it, mm-hmm. uh, about 30% of people might get so, uh, more serious um, complications like diarrhea or blindness, which can be permanent, uh, inflammation of the brain, which can cause brain damage, and uh, pneumonia, which is you know just liquid on the lungs but can also knock people out. Um, and that all sounds pretty horrible in pretty itself. Pretty nasty, yes. Uh, it's a nasty sort of a, a virus to get. So it's not just the not just the occasional red spot. No. It's uh, a whole lot of more serious things. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's enough reason in itself to get a vaccine if you can yeah. prevent getting sick from that. But the increased risk of contracting other illnesses after you recover from the measles is just another reason to try and ensure that everyone has access to these vaccinations when... Ever, uh, whenever they're available. Um, look, if you want to look up the paper in science, the title of that is Long-Term Measles-Induced Immunomodulation. It's a great word. Uh, increases Overall Childhood Infectious Disease Mortality. So if you want to look that up, uh, just plug that into your favourite search engine and you'll get access to the... Well, you get access to the abstract. traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop... Lost in science. Okay, so let me ask you a a question, all right? Okay. Okay, So, talk about this person, Steve... Uh, who was chosen at random. We can say they were chosen at random from a representative sample. Um, and if I tell you this about them. So Steve is very shy and withdrawn, invariably helpful but with little interest in people or in the world of reality. A meek and tidy soul, he has a need for order and structure and a passion for detail. Now, would you say that Steve is more likely to be a librarian or a farmer? Hmm, that's a tough one. Yeah. I'd, I'd probably, my first reaction would be to say librarian. Yep. But the more I think about it, the more I think maybe he would actually be better suited to being a farmer. <laughs> if he doesn't like people and he's shy and would rather stand, you know, he'd rather be out standing in his field. <laughs> well, this, uh, this this is an example taken from um, Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm. which is all about um, the way people think and also about the mistakes that people make. Yeah. And he uses this as an example of um, a kind of a bias that we have in our poor understanding of statistics in that essentially there are many, many, many more farmers in in the country, or in the country, in in um in Australia, for instance, than there are librarians, particularly male librarians. Mm. Um, so just on odds, Steve is much more likely to be a farmer who is happens to be meek and has the characteristics of a librarian than he is to be a librarian. So yeah, this is as I said, this was used as an example of how humans are not terribly good at statistics. We tend to look at similarities between things and look for 
clues and patterns and that sort of stuff and for often for patterns that aren't there when there is random things going on. So, yeah, so when it comes to things like the science of psephology, that's P-S-E-P-H-O-L-O-G-Y, which is the, the science of predicting elections, uh, bear in mind that, um, you know, the best forecasters that are out there can only ever really give you a, a likelihood of a result. They can't give you an exact result, and they should always provide a margin of error in their mm. predictions as well. So that's something to bear in mind, I guess. So, um, look, one of the, the best respected cephologists in the world today is a bloke called Nate Silver. He's American, runs a website called 538.com. He started as a sports statistician and things like baseball, which is very heavily kind of run on sports, yep. uh, on statistics and yep. numbers. Think of the, the movie Moneyball. Oh, yes, and, yes. Book. Um, yeah, so he started off doing that kind of statistics, and uh, but he became famous for accurately predicting the results of the 2008 and 2012 presidential elections. Uh, he did much better than the, um, the standard political pundits who, who usually generally make their predictions from a basis of their kind of ideological bias or from their theories or understanding of how the electorate works. Yeah. Whereas Nate Silver and his ilk, because he's kind of inspired a few other people, um, use opinion polls which are designed to extract what people actually are going are to vote mm. and with a correct weighting and um, adjustment for, um, for you know, certain other kind of knowledge, known sort of statistics and facts about the electorate and to try and use those polls then and correctly weighted and, and analysed to get a prediction of what the actual result will be. And this so is how I guess he gets freakishly accurate predictions. I guess that's the real trick is he was giving giving your data the correct weight. How, how important is the data that you collect, I guess? That's right. That's right. So, and he's, he's, got, he's, got, a very, um, he's got a book called The Signal and the Noise where he gives many examples of this kind of, um, this kind of work in, um, in various fields and also mistakes people made in predicting. He um, starts with the, the GFC, which was famously not predicted by many of the experts on economics. Uh, but look, an interesting example, I guess, of, of forecasting, which is something to, to bear in mind, um, where you see some of these kind of, the, I suppose, the biases and the successes of forecasting is in weather. Now, one of the interesting things about weather is that um, our forecasting of it has improved a lot, as you can imagine. We have supercomputers. We have better understanding of the way weather systems work. It has improved a lot. Um, it's, it's certainly a lot more accurate now than what I remember it being even 20 years ago. Well, I can give you, I can give you a better, better figure than that because I, I decided I would look this up. Has anyone okay. looked at, for instance, the accuracy of the Bureau of Meteorology? Um, and there is a meteorologist called Harvey Stern who has published a, a number of papers where he assesses the accuracy of weather forecasting, in particular for the city of Melbourne, which, as he says, is famous for its variable weather. Yep. So it's a good test base for um, weather prediction. Uh, so his most recent paper, which was published uh, just this year, uh, looks at the the forecasting over that they, they currently give, which is the, the seven-day outlook, yep. um, as well as some of the experimental um, predictions that go beyond seven days, which they're not out there generally released to the public because they're not considered to be as accurate. They, they do. I've, I've... Um, so what he's found in his, in his latest paper includes that the accuracy of the current official five to seven day forecast, so between five and seven days, is about the same as the, the one day forecast from 50 years ago. 
Oh, wow. So previously, 50 years ago, they would have been able to give a certain accuracy in predicting the next day. Now we can predict the next week about as accurate as they could have done the next day. And this is looking at the actual statistics of the accuracy. Okay. Um, and the experimental forecast, which go between sort of eight to ten days, is equivalent to the five to seven day forecasts of only 15 years ago. And yet, of course, people still complain about the weather forecasts. And this is because people um, people tend to remember when things are wrong, and particularly wrong and it's affected them badly. And um, this is something that Nate Silver addresses in his book. And in fact, he, he points out that some um, forecasts, in particular the ones from commercial organisations that are um, kind of in competition to the official government bureaus, um, they can sometimes run a little wet in their forecasts. And this is because people are more likely to complain when it rains unexpectedly. So they tend to over-forecast rain a bit so that people would rather be surprised with a nice sunny day rather than being surprised with a day that ruins their picnic. Uh-huh. So, yeah, so it's, yeah, it's interesting to bear in mind that how our perceptions play into this. So, yeah, so, um, but even then, it is possible still to get it wrong. So, uh, and this is where the, I guess, the UK election comes in because everyone basically got that wrong. People were predicting a hung parliament. They were predicting a, you know, a knife edge kind of result yep. when the Conservatives seem to have fairly easily won uh, the election. In fact, Nate Silver's own team, they predicted that the Conservatives would win only 278 seats, whereas, in fact, they um, won 331 so giving them an quite a big victory. margin, really. There's a, a big, a big margin. So it was interesting. I, when I saw this, I thought, well, it's going to be interesting to see how how he defends that. And what he actually talked about when he was asked about this was he actually said that he got the the margin of error wrong. He wasn't too concerned about him actually getting the number of seats wrong, but he said that he got the margin of error wrong. Um, they said that between it was between 252 and 305 seats was the result they were expecting right. and that they should have allowed for a greater margin of error and particularly on the basis of there have been big kind of mistakes in the past with UK elections in 1992 there was um, all the polls were predicting that John Major would lose uh, an election and he turned out to win and the error there was a lot bigger than the the most recent election and that he rec- you know Nate Silver saying that they should have allowed for a greater inaccuracy of the polls as a result of that. Um, but there are other threats looming to the science of cephalology apart from you know these kind of uncertainties which I need to cater for. Apparently opinion polls are at risk simply due to the fact that the traditional way of, of conducting them, which is to ring people up and ask them who they're going to vote for, is threatened by the fact that people don't use landlines anymore. Oh, and that's how they based it, obviously, on the postcodes and where people actually lived. Yeah, they, they did a lot of the demographics. And also, well, it's also that, uh, you know, a lot of... Um, the uh, the automated calling systems, like the computer calling systems, yeah. often aren't allowed to call uh, mobiles. Right. So they're only allowed to call landlines, which makes it a bit difficult to get the the same kind of uh, the same quality of data. I the guess. Same quality yeah. of data. Yeah. So they've tried. You're trying um, internet based polls, but they're often more self selecting. So it's kind of a emerging problem. Um, like so, we have seen this UK election being poorly predicted. Apparently, the recent Israeli elections were also poorly forecast by opinion polls. So, look, it remains to be seen whether these are just kind of statistical blips, um, or whether there is kind of a crisis of opinion polling. Um, but yes, we'll have to wait and see. But in the meantime, yeah, take your take the predictions with a grain of salt. Look at what the actual margin of error is with the polls um, before deciding what you think is actually going to be happen and um, yeah, especially if you're putting any money on it, I guess. Yeah, always check the bookies' odds.
Yeah, well, apparently they do quite a bit better often than the polls. So, yeah, <laughs> always have a look at the bookies as well. Where people, people are willing to put their money where their mouth is. It's been shown, it's been shown often with psychology that, yes, when um, people act a lot more rationally when their money is at stake, yes. speaking to Dr Hannah Brown who's a postdoctoral fellow at the Robinson Research Institute at the University of Adelaide. Um, Hannah welcome to Lost in Science. Great thank you so much for having me. Now you do a lot of research epigenetic research yourself and so we'll talk about a little bit about that later but I just before we start I wanted to know your opinion about recent research from Chinese researchers who have published results of a study where they edited DNA inside a human embryo can you tell me a little bit about that research yeah absolutely so basically what they 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 set out to do was to try and uh, cure a disease called beta thalassemia which is a disease of the red blood cells and what they did was they obtained some human embryos from um, an IVF clinic that they collaborated with. And these human embryos were considered to be non-viable. So they were embryos that had uh, been generated uh, in the IVF clinic and these embryos had had one egg and two sperm, which means that they've got too much DNA making them um, not able to go on and, and, and generate a baby. So they took these non-viable embryos and they used a technology which we in the lab call CRISPR-Cas9, but you guys can probably refer to as more like a, a sat-nav-guided pair of molecular scissors, and they injected these into these embryos, um, and these, these scissors targeted the, the bit of the DNA which causes uh, beta thalassemia, and their aim was to, to cut it out and then to replace it with a, with a healthy piece of DNA or a non-disease-causing piece of DNA to, to try and cure the disease. And did they have any, any luck in doing this? Was it successful? Um, well, that's a good question. So this was the first time that research like this had been published in human embryos. And so they had some successes in being able to remove the bit of DNA, the damaged bit of DNA that they were trying to. But what also happens is they got, they have, they got lots of off-target effects, which means that these, this sat-nav-guided technology didn't, didn't work in the way that they thought it would. It it found places, other places in the DNA and made mistakes so that they couldn't really predict what the outcome was going to be. Do you feel like it's um, kind of the beginning of a, a, a chapter of being able to snip human DNA or do you feel like it's, we've got a long way to go before we, can, we will do that? Well, I, I, these technologies have been, have been used pretty effectively in, in other systems, in, in animal embryos and, and in other types of human cells for a couple of years now. So the technologies are new, but, but they work very well and, mm -hmm. and other groups have successfully 
cut out bits of, of disease-causing DNA and, and replaced them with normal DNA. And, and so the reasons why this didn't work very well in the human embryos, I guess there's, there's many possibilities, but one of the possibilities is because the embryos were not viable, meaning that because they had too much DNA, there was problems with the way that these molecular scissors targeted the right parts of DNA. But I think it's an interesting, a really interesting time in in um, genetics research, particularly when we're working in, in embryos, because it, you know, it does provide the possibility that we are able to modify the DNA and to remove a disease-causing um, mutation or a disease-causing part of DNA that causes diseases like cystic fibrosis and Huntington's disease, which we understand the, the DNA component of, and, and remove those to make a, you know, a future where these types of diseases don't occur. The problem with this is that um, we don't really know how to effectively test these technologies. So even if we were to be able to use a, a viable embryo that could go on to, to form a baby, without really understanding how, the, how this CRISPR-Cas9 system works, we would perhaps have to generate a baby with a completely unknown outcome uh, to see whether this technology works. And that certainly raises many, many ethical concerns for, from the, the biology world right through to the human ethics world. And, and a very high risk, I could imagine. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so you yourself uh, work um, with the human genome at the University of Adelaide. Can you tell me about your, the research that you do? You don't, do, you def, you don't sniff out DNA of human um, genomes, or, or do you? Tell me. Yeah, no, we, we certainly do don't do this, those kind, that kind of research here in, in my team at the university. Um, what we're mostly focused on is, is what happens in the early embryo and the signals that the early embryo gets. So we're very interested in, in the things that the, the physiological stresses that happen in early, in early embryo development or in early pregnancy in women. So we're interested in things like infection and diabetes and how the embryo gets the messages that the, the mother has an infection or has diabetes and how the embryo changes its potential um, so that long-term its, its outcomes are different than we would ordinarily expect in a normal pregnancy. So we do a little work on, on human cells, but those cells are, uh, are not human embryos. Work on human embryos is very heavily licensed by, by the government in Australia and the types of research done by these Chinese researchers is absolutely not possible in Australia at this point. So the cells, the only work on human cells we do are on, are on cell lines that, are, that we keep in incubators in dishes or on cells that would be ordinarily thrown away in the, um, in the assisted reproductive technology process. So the cells that surround the egg um, prior to um, in vitro fertilisation, but we don't use the egg or the embryo. And your research here in Australia, can I ask you a little bit about um, the future of the funding and support for research? I'm very lucky to be to have my research supported both by the, the NHMRC um, through the Robinson and the Robinson Research Institute and also by the, um, by the Australian Research Council, the ARC, which, uh, which fund a huge centre um, for nanoscale biophotonics, which I'm also part of. So I'm very fortunate that that the research I do is, is currently funded, but the climate for science in Australia is, is not particularly positive and we've seen a dramatic decrease in the amount of funding for research um, over time and um, money moving away from, from tertiary education units, meaning that it's more difficult to, to employ scientists and that, that all, of us, all of the scientists 
at least in my team, are all based, are all funded by research grants. And with with that money seeming to dry up and a and a sort of I guess disinterest in research and development currently in Australia, it's it's very difficult to see how this research is going to be productive long term. Okay, so there's a feeling of uncertainty about where the future of the research. Yeah, good luck with it, and thank you for being on Lost in Science. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Dr. Hannah Brown talking to us from the University of Adelaide about her research into epigenetics and how a mother's health and body can affect an embryo and also looking at the recent research in kind of chopping and changing human DNA within an embryo. Thank you, Hannah. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Lost in Science on the Community Radio Network. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can leave a comment on our blog, which is lostinscience.wordpress.com. And we're also on Facebook and Twitter if you want to look for us there. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If that's not enough information, you can tune in again next week when Chris, Beth and Stuart get lost in science! listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.